Support for MPB comes from University of Mississippi School of Education, offering online master's degrees in elementary education, higher education, and early childhood education. Your master's degree can be earned online in as little as one to two years. More information at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, examining travel expenses at state agencies as the legislature continues to look for ways to control spending. Then a story corps conversation from Mississippi on joining the Peace Corps in the 1960s. And should some convicted felons be allowed to vote? We'll talk to an advocate who says yes. Six million Americans will not be able to vote in the November election. Uh, of that total, less than a quarter of them are in prison. Three quarters of that total of six million are out living in the community. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State lawmakers are turning their attention to how state employees travel for work. As part of an ongoing series of working groups examining budgets, the legislature questioned department heads yesterday on travel in and out of state for work. State leaders are looking for ways to cut costs in the wake of declining budgets. David Jellick heads the Division of Medicaid. He tells MPB's Paul Boger the budget examination process has been interesting. It's been an interesting process. I think we've learned a lot uh, through it, and we've we got one more to go. Talking a little bit about travel today, what are your thoughts? How's, what does Division of Medicaid's travel expenses look like? Our travel expenses are fairly minimal compared to a lot of other agencies, and almost all of our travel is necessary to do audits and oversight to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse. So it's, and the vast majority of our travel is in-state travel to look at providers, look at uh, how they do business, make sure that we audit them correctly. And a lot of what we do is required by our oversight groups, CMS, and the, the federal agencies that oversee how we do our business. Yeah, there was several questions about out-of-state travel, uh, not just your agency, the Division of Medicaid, but all state agencies, uh, lawmakers are looking at that. You know, what, what happens in out-of-state travel? A lot of it is for continuing education. A lot of it is for to get the latest update on how to do your job correctly. We've got a lot of, uh, in our program integrity group, there's meetings every year about what's new and how, to, how do you audit folks, how do you look for fraud, waste, and abuse. Those things are always changing. And those are, we send... We've got a, it's a very large workforce, and we send them to learn the newest and best techniques. It's no secret that all of this is to look for ways to cut down on state spending. Um, is there some aspect of the Division of Medicaid that can do with a little trimming, or is it all vital at this point? We have the lowest administrative budget in the country at 2.9%, so we're already lean. We spend 97% of the dollars that we get from the state to provide access to health care for our beneficiaries. There's very little to cut for us, unless you start cutting what we provide the beneficiaries or the services that we provide to the beneficiaries. What happens if there are cuts in that aspect? 
well, the provider community is not going to be uh, very happy with that. And when we start talking about making cuts to services or reimbursement for services, we're going to have to get approval from CMS, and they're not really in the, they don't really do that very well. MPB's Paul Boger with David Jellick of the Division of Medicaid. Glenn Boyce, Commissioner of Higher Education, tells Paul Boger the universities and colleges are open about how they spend money on travel and other items. Okay, I think this has been an excellent process. And what we're trying to convey to them is, number one, is that we're incredibly transparent. Number two is that we are keeping track and holding things accountable uh, at a pretty high level. And uh, so um, those are the, probably the two things that we wanted to make sure they understood, that with the way that you can pr- process data these days, that we can take and hold things accountable at a very high level, and we can also make wise decisions based on data. So we're trying to provide them an awful lot of data so they can see how decisions are being made out there. Part of this process is to see where there are extra cuts available. Do you think that in the IHL system there are places where lawmakers can make cuts or the IHL can make cuts? I think there are always places where you can look at efficiencies. You know, I think over time, if you continue to have uh, an efficiency eye out there, you will work at that uh, every single year. I don't think it's something that comes and goes based on the money. Now, sure, some people might say, well, you know, you get a little lax as there's more money, okay? But the truth of the matter is we're trying to hold everything tight because we've learned all the way from 2009 that, you know, things can change overnight on us. So we are trying to create efficiencies all the time and working at that. And so we understand that that's what law makers expect of us and they expect every state dollar to be spent wisely and we get that and by the way it's it's money earned by our taxpayers and i expect exactly the same thing do so to the presence of the institutions ihl works a little differently than most state agencies though it if if ihl can't get enough money from the state it has to turn around and charge students more tuition do you think that, that that could be a possibility if there are a greater number of cuts? Oh, it, it certainly could be. There's no question about it. You know, uh, it, it, as you take and have a reduction of, of uh, dollars appropriated to you in any category, you may be looking at what you have to do to raise that money and that revenue. So sometimes you absolutely have to go out there and look at student tuition. One of the things we've done, though, and the evidence shows it, and I've got the data to provide that as well, is that we have fought to keep our tuition um, uh, down compare in particular to our surrounding states and to our peer colleges and we're fighting to continue to do that because we understand you know that it's a hardship on our families but one other point i think is very important we also understand it's the best investment right now that families and students can make for their future best investment you know today specifically was talking about travel a little bit Where's IHL's travel budget? How big of an impact does that have on the overall budget for the eight universities? Yeah, it's very small, actually. Uh, It's very small. Uh, It's actually in state hours. It's only uh, less than 1% of of the entire uh, budgets for the institutions. It's actually 0.53 if you want the specific uh, as far as the travel budget. So it's not large at all. While I have you here, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about what's going on with JSU. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it just goes back to we're working very closely in a partnership to try to make sure that we can take the the cash reserves and move those cash reserves back into a level that uh, the university should be holding. And so that's where we're at with that. How did the university get in that situation? Well, just over the over a period of four or five years, the cash reserves continued to decline. And perhaps the biggest reason is the projections of what they thought revenue coming in 
was going to be uh, did not match up, and they didn't make those revenue projections. So what happened, of course, is expenses weren't reduced to match up with those revenues, and they've been running a deficit in expenses for several years now, and those those uh, uh, expenses got pretty large, and the deficit got pretty large, and just, they had to reach into their cash account, just like any family would if they had a savings account and overspent their uh, their earnings. But how do you mesh that with what lawmakers are doing here? You know, that, that seems like fiscal irresponsibility. You know, that's what lawmakers are trying to, to fish out. Well, and we're working very hard to uh, to ensure that we get an upward trend, and we're going to be very positive about it because we've got a team working in IHL and Jackson State and this team are all working together to turn, reverse that trend as quickly as we possibly can. MPB's Paul Boger with Commissioner of Higher Education, Glenn Boyce. Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves tells Paul Boger examining the travel budgets could lead to real savings in the state budget. Yes, yeah, so we're having hearings, a large number of state agencies, uh, those that represent the largest budgets uh, in state government are coming in and presenting to the uh, working groups today, talking primarily about travel and out-of-state travel. And um, what we've uh, found is that uh, the state of Mississippi spent over $60 million in travel last year. Uh, that being the case, if we were able to find 10% in savings, that would be $6 million. If we are able to find 20% in savings, that would be $12 million. We're talking about real money, uh, real opportunities to um, to reduce overall spending in the state. And um, and, and the other thing that we've tried to do today is really um, be important. It's important that we differentiate between necessary travel, quality travel, such as uh, State Department of Education employees that are um, literacy coaches going out and, and traveling to schools. That's obviously a quality travel. And then you've got other travel like, you know, the Division of Medicaid's got over 80 employees traveling to out-of-state conferences last year. That's, uh, I think most taxpayers would say that's a little bit excessive. And so we're trying to figure out um, the, the differences between those two and see where we can find savings for the, the next year's budget. You know, listening to Dr. Jellicoe, he says like a lot of that money, a lot of those travel was for uh, professional development, trying to find the, the newest and best way, to, best practices for to run the division of Medicaid. Yeah, I th- and I think that there are certainly um, some conferences that make sense. I mean, clearly, I think Dr. Jellick ought to attend the um, the national conferences for Medicaid directors. But I don't think many taxpayers in Mississippi think that there are eighty different employees at the division that ought to be traveling out of state. I think we ought to be in, in Mississippi working uh, to try to better serve the, the, the patients and, and the uh, recipients of Medicaid and also uh, getting things done. And so, like you say, there's, there's going to be some of the travel is, uh, makes sense and some of it's uh, excessive, and it's our job to figure out the difference between the two. You know, it's no secret that part of this, these working groups is to find, like you said, more room in the budget. You know, wh- overall, what are you hearing? What are your thoughts? Well, I think that um, what we're hearing is that uh, many of the the agencies that have done the most complaining about their small budget cut year over year uh, are the ones that are doing as much uh, the most of the travel or much of the travel. And so I think it's been very eye-opening for many of the uh, House members and Senate members that have sat on these budget review uh, panels. It's uh, We're certainly able to uh, bring to light some of these um, expenses, and I think it's always good. Uh, when taxpayers are able to see through uh, your entity and, and other um, other media personnel the, uh, some of these excessive spending and, and why we're trying to get those under control. MPB's Paul Boger with Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves on examining state travel budgets as part of reducing state expenditures. Up next, a StoryCorps conversation from Mississippi on joining the Peace Corps in the 1960s. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. Nash Noble is a daughter of the South, but she was also coming of age in the politically turbulent 1960s. During a StoryCorps interview in Jackson, Noble tells how her family and community reacted to her decision to join the Peace Corps. Nash Noble spoke to her friend Jeannie Mullins. I had finished a degree in English, and I had finished a degree in music. I had been in college six years, and I felt I had never done one worthwhile thing in my life. I'd had a lot done for me. I had learned a lot, but I had not repaid anybody for anything, really, and I decided to join and How in old the, were you? I was 23. And in the South, you know, that was a John Kennedy thing, and that was not a popular thing, and people were very unkind. How so? When I was accepted for training, I was accepted to go to Nigeria, and people were saying, you going to Nigeria? They don't even take baths. They, you know, they didn't know anything. People mm-hmm. were just saying whatever mm-hmm. came to their mind. Mostly... I think they were scared and of what would know. happen and didn't know. And didn't know. Mm-hmm. In those days, I don't know how the Peace Corps accepts people nowadays. This is what they told us. Of all the people that apply, they accept 1 in 11. This is when I applied. Mm-hmm. They accepted 1 in 11. And then of those that went to training, 20% were selected out before training was over. They'd had a lot of suicides in the field the first two years, and um, they had not done much. Yeah, okay. They had not done much psychological testing, and then they did. We had a lot of psychological testing, and and they sent some people home right after that. Really, they did. This was at UCLA. We trained at UCLA. How long was training? From October to December. They sent us home at Christmas as a test to see if we would go over when Christmas was over, and we did. We all met it. Kennedy Airport. Kennedy was killed while we were in training. That was a hard thing. Oh, my thing. gosh. We all joined because of him, because he was charismatic. He was intelligent. He spoke in complete sentences. He had a good command of the language, and he was inspiring. Mm-hmm. He was. And we all were impressed with him and joined because of him. And then he was killed while we were in training, and the morale dropped out, and the the first time I ever saw grown men cry. So your Peace Corps assignment was in Nigeria. Nigeria. I was in. I was sent to an area that had been known as the white man's grave because it was in the Delta. It was hot and lots of mosquitoes. You were used to that. I was used to it. it didn't bother me. <laughs> it didn't bother me at all. That was a perfect assignment, actually. And anyway, <laughs> when you're when you're twenty. Four. I was 24 by that time. You're invincible. You feel invincible. We didn't have running water or electricity, and it didn't matter the least bit. You came home with malaria? I did. I did. The University of Mississippi Medical Center was delighted. They sent all their students down to draw blood because they had never seen live zygotes. Every other afternoon at 3 o'clock, the fever hit and the blood went out. I thought they were going to drain me dry, but they didn't. Anyway, now, were, were you misdiagnosed first? Well, no. Actually, okay. the first doctor who saw me was 86 years old, and he said, I've, I've seen hundreds of cases of malaria. That's what you've got, malaria. And I said, I think I do, too. And he said, I'll send you home to your parents. This was, 
I'd passed out at the wheel of the car on my way back to my teaching position, and he sent me home. And the the young doctors at the hospital said, oh, no, it's a kidney infection or it's prediabetes or it's whatever else. And the fever kept going up every other day at 3 o'clock. And finally they took blood while it was doing that. This is after a week and a half. And it was malaria. And then they just gave me quinine and sent me home. How long does it take to get over malaria? It takes a long time because it's very debilitating. Mm -hmm. I was deaf and yellow for a long time. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Many Mississippians have already voted for president and other offices in this year's elections. Others are waiting until Election Day to cast their ballot. But one segment of the population is legally barred from voting this year and for the rest of their lives. Because if you're convicted, if you are a convicted felon in the state, you cannot vote. There is a way called expungement to erase some crimes and regain the right to vote. But this is a legal process that many can't afford. Governors and legislators can also assist with pardons. We spoke with Mark Maurer of the Sentencing Project about the issue. He says African-Americans are particularly affected by loss of voting rights because of felony convictions. Voting is generally determined by the states. The Constitution gives states the right to to set what those qualifications are, and that's the reason why we have such a broad range of policies in the states going anywhere from two states, Maine and Vermont, where everyone can vote, including people in prison, to states like Mississippi and others, where you can even lose your right to vote even after you complete your sentence as well. In Mississippi, as you said, it doesn't matter whether you're in prison or whether you've completed your sentence? Right. Uh, In most states, 38 states, when you complete your sentence, you automatically get your rights restored. But in 12 states, including Mississippi, you may even lose your right to vote after you complete your sentence. And it can frequently be for the rest of your life, even for a single uh, felony conviction. Is there an appeal process for that? Yes. In almost every state, you can try to get your rights restored generally by appealing to the governor, but in most states, that process is not well known. It can be very cumbersome, and the number of people who are successfully able to get that done is very limited. Uh, Mississippi is relatively unique in that the main way to get your rights restored is to actually have a bill filed in the legislature specifically on your behalf and get a vote through the legislature. Uh, Needless to say, most people going through the system are low income and status, don't have the resources or the knowledge of how to work a bill through a legislative process. Does the Sentencing Project think that there are inmates or those who have served a sentence who should not be voting? 
Uh, I don't see any reason why we should do that. You know, when people commit a crime, uh, there will be punishment involved. It may involve being sentenced to prison or being under community supervision, but we don't normally take away people's fundamental rights of citizenship. So even if you're sitting in a prison cell, you can still get married or divorced. You can buy or sell property. Uh, we usually make a distinction. You don't stop being a citizen just because you've been convicted of a crime. And in fact, not only is that the case in states of Maine and Vermont, but in many industrialized nations, that's a very standard distinction to make, that yes, you may be in prison for a long time, but you're still a citizen of this country. We know that felonies can include violent crimes, such as murder and rape and assault. What are some felonies that people may be surprised are felony? Well, uh, lots of property crimes uh, are considered felonies. Uh, so burglary, larceny, uh, property destruction, stealing a car, uh, even you know crimes in many states is crime called larceny from a building, which means if you take any piece of property outside of its grounds, you can be committing a felony. So if you go into a local convenience store and you steal a candy bar, walk out the store, um, you might be charged with shoplifting. You might just be made to pay for the candy bar, but you can be charged with larceny from a building, which is a felony, uh, and that stays on your record for the rest of your life. So, uh, you know, we think of serious crimes like murders and rapes, but it goes very far down on the scale of severity as well. How many felony offenders in the United States right now will not be able to vote in this upcoming election? Well, six million Americans will not be able to vote in the November election. Uh, of that total, less than a quarter of them are in prison. Three quarters of that total of six million are out living in the community. They're either under probation or parole supervision, or a full three million of them have completed their sentences but are ineligible to vote in those states in which they live. Six million sounds like an awful lot. What is the percentage of that compared to the rest of the voting public? Well, the total is about two and a half percent. One of every 40 people is disenfranchised from the process. If we break it down by race, not surprisingly, we see disproportionate rates of disenfranchisement for African Americans as we do in the justice system. So among African Americans nationally, it's one of every 13 adults who will not be eligible to vote in the election. Do you think race plays a part in those states that do not allow a felon to vote? Well, there certainly is a long racial history in some states. Uh, in many southern states in the post-Reconstruction period, during the time that poll taxes and literacy requirements were being adopted, some of those states uh, tinkered with their disenfranchisement law with the specific intent of excluding black voters. Uh, you got strange situations such as in Alabama where uh, if you convicted of beating your wife, you would lose your right to vote, but if you convicted of killing your wife, you would not lose the right to vote. And this was based on the strange racial logic of the time and how law enforcement operated and the like. Mark Maurer is executive director of the Sentencing Project. Thank you so much for being with us, Mark. Thanks for having me. Coming up after Mississippi edition, it's Money Talks in Legal Terms and Southern Remedy. 
And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, offering online master's degrees in elementary education, higher education, and early childhood education. Your master's degree can be earned online in as little as one to two years. More information at education.olemiss.edu. It's Marketplace.